Matthew 16, verse 21, through to uh, the end of that chapter. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet uh, loses his his uh, uh, sorry um, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. Well, the congregation suddenly just got smaller. That's just when my family walked out. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, pray before we consider this passage and think about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness in giving us words of life. I thank you that we can come to understand the right way to live. Thank you that we can come to understand who Jesus is and why he's come and that we can build our lives in faith upon him. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from time to time when people watch a movie, they notice that uh, the opening scene leads their thinking down one track, only for them to find out a bit later in the show that uh, that's really not the quite the right way to understand the situation. Have you ever seen shows like that? I saw a show, an Australian show, called Getting Square. That's right, it didn't have a G in the getting square. It was an Australian show, so it was called Getting Square. And uh, the actor David Wenham was in uh, the opening scene in a bank robbery which involved him travelling in some combi van and balaclava clad and entering a building to, uh, to do a robbery. In this, uh, in this show, he gets into some strife, some deep trouble, and you're left thinking as a viewer, well, that's it for him. But without hopefully spoiling the show for you too much, uh, it turns out that that scene is the very one uh, which gives him freedom. And so you're travelling down one path thinking all's no good, only to realise later that actually it's a bit different. Now the Apostle Peter in the passage we looked at last week has just stumbled upon the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But what he thinks about that uh, is really quite different to what's in Jesus' mind. In fact, he finds himself with his idea rolling down one track only to hit the buffers at the end of it. 
But what about you? Can you spot the difference between the Messiah that Peter has in mind and the Messiah that Jesus knows himself to be? Well, we're going to pick this up in verse 21 in the passage. So if you've got the text there in front of you, you might find it helpful to look on. The bad news comes first. Peter was probably feeling pretty good about himself, having just concluded that Jesus was in fact the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then Jesus goes on and explains exactly what that means in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus doesn't say uh, he might find himself in a bit of strife here. He says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. There is some good news that's uh, inserted in here though. We find out that he says he will be raised to life on the third day. But it's that kind of hope that Peter doesn't seem to focus in on. But how is it that Jesus actually knows that these things must happen in the first place? Well, throughout our study of uh, Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is very familiar with the Old Testament. And many of us know Isaiah 53. It's a passage about the suffering servant. Well, that's not the only scripture that Jesus probably has in mind for his knowledge that he will suffer as God's Messiah. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? He actually quoted from Psalm chapter 22. This is what he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22:16, we read, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And furthermore, in verse 18 of Psalm 22, we read, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And Matthew quotes that verse, it seems, in Matthew 27. So clearly Jesus knows from the Old Testament that as the Messiah, he must be one who suffers and be killed. But the question is, why, apart from that knowledge of it being in the Old Testament, uh, is it necessary for him to die? Why should he die? Even though it's written in the Old Testament, why should it happen? Well, he does give us more insight into why he should actually be killed later in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 26, verse 28, this is what Jesus says when he's explaining out the uh, drinking of the cup of the Passover. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that Jesus understands his death is bound up with being poured out, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he's building on the logic of the sacrificial system here, knowing that uh, life and blood must be paid for someone else's sins. The Bible teaches us from Adam onwards, everybody has sinned. Everybody has failed to love and honour God as they should. And the Bible tells us that the penalty for that is death. Paul reminds us too that this is um, not just something for Adam, the wages of sin is death. But here in Matthew, Jesus tells that he's come to die. He's come to die in our place as the perfect sacrifice. 
Now, this topic of um, punishment for sin or punishment for crime is in many ways a pretty grim topic. But I've noticed that our society still appreciates that crime is something that our society understands and punishment for crime is something they appreciate. Uh, Recently I read an article by a New South Wales Attorney General whose name is John and the surname is rather unpronounceable so I won't even attempt it. He's the New South Wales Minister for Justice and Attorney General. He said, in our jails today there are 608 murderers, 903 sex offenders and 110 kidnappers. Their horrific crimes often attract considerable media attention But as headlines fade from public memory, victims and their families never forget. Each victim has a heartbreaking story of how their life was impacted and in many cases destroyed. But furthermore, he says, imprisonment serves the function of retribution. The community rightly expects that people who perpetrate crime will be justly punished. You see that? The community rightly expects that people who perpetrate crime will be justly punished. People understand that crime should have a punishment. The Bible tells us that the reality for us is that we are guilty as well. Our crime is against God. We've broken God's law explicitly. We know even by nature how we should live, but we don't always live that way. Or we've broken God's law Implicitly, we've broken the spirit of it in the cases often like for things like murder and adultery. While each of us has rebelled from God, our maker, it's true that none of us can be uh, blame-shifting and saying, well, they all blew it uh, with God, but certainly not me. I'm a perfect man. I got it right. There are none of us who can actually say that. But the good news from the word of God is that even though in our deaths we learn that we are not God and our life is limited and we will experience the wages of sin, the Bible tells us that God is kind, that he understands our plight and our desperate situation and in his goodness he has sent Jesus who willingly lays down his life for our sin. And that's what we see in this passage. Well, Peter thinks this is rather unthinkable in verse 22. The news is just all too much for him. We see that in uh, verse 22, I'll read it out. Peter took Jesus aside. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Well, it seems that Peter's got a different agenda for the Messiah. He figured uh, the Messiah came to do some things, but dying wasn't one of them. In the past, the kings of Israel had plans for the temple. Uh, David had the plan to build it and it was actually built under King Solomon. King Hezekiah and Josiah cleansed the temple and others such as Nehemiah and Zerubbabel had to re-establish it when it got demolished. But even Herod the Great who came later on who was only a half-Jew spent time building the temple and trying to adorn it and improve it probably as a way to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people. And so when Peter is thinking of Jesus as the Messiah, he's thinking perhaps Jesus is now coming to revamp the temple worship and throw out the corrupt priests who are 
trying to fleece the flock and lead people in the right way to come to God. But how could a Messiah who dies be someone who's going to revamp the temple program? How could that happen if they're dead? And what about warfare? Uh, In the past, women used to sing that uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The king was the leader of his people against the enemies of Israel. King Hezekiah waited upon God to defeat the enemies and King Josiah even died in battle fighting for the Israelites. Was Jesus really going to be killed by the occupying forces before he had a chance to lead the Israelites in victory over these Romans? How could dying really become part of the Messiah's agenda? In fact, it sounds like a contradiction to Peter. A dead Messiah? It doesn't really work. Well, I've come to appreciate, uh, even just in the last week, the radical approach that Jesus had to himself being the Messiah. Last week I spoke to a Jewish man who was holidaying here in Port Macquarie and he was telling me that there are all kinds of Jews. Some are zealous and uh, orthodox and some are more moderate and pretty cruisy. I think he was of the latter kind. And he's telling me that the, uh, the more zealous variety were people like the guy who killed former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, if that's how you pronounce his name, back in 1995. Uh, Rabin had policies which involved giving land back to the Palestinians and some zealous Jews thought that that was not the right way to go. Now I asked this guy if he was still expecting a Messiah to come. And he said, yes, someone who would help rebuild the Jewish nation and regain ground that had been lost to the Palestinians. And I asked him why he didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. And he told me that the Messiah had to be Jewish. And I thought that was pretty funny because I said, well, he was Jewish. And I think he thought, well, Christianity, they're probably Anglo-Saxons and he might have thought that Jesus was an Anglo. Anyway. I said, well, he was Jewish. And he said, well, the problem with Jesus was that he went about things, and his English was a bit interesting, he said he went about things a different way. He moved his hands around. And I thought, well, I can agree with you on that. Jesus certainly did go about things in a different way as the Messiah. And we find in verse 23 that he's not going to be moved by anyone from the way that he understands that he should be going. In verse 23... Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, at this point, one gets the impression that Peter's probably uh, back down with his head down and gone away with his tail between his legs. But as the readers, we're already familiar with the fact that Jesus has been challenged to come to his kingly glory in a way that doesn't involve suffering. We saw that earlier on in Matthew at the start when Satan tempted Jesus by taking him high up onto a mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. And he said, all these I'll give to you if you bow down and worship me. But the response that Jesus gave to Satan back then, you might have even uh, seen the language is familiar in this section where he responds to Peter. Jesus' response to Satan was uncompromising. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And of course here we see 
Jesus saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's the same kind of shoot through. I've got to go this way. Well, Peter has in mind plans that have more to do with Satan's plans than they have to do with God's plans. Jesus says, you know, have in mind the things of God. What you've got in mind, Peter, is the things of men. Ah, the things of men. What are the things of men that Peter has in mind? I'm intrigued just to see the fact that Jesus... um, That's a rhetorical question, Edgar. I'll get your answer later on. Jesus has in mind even the word men. I don't know, there was a book written years ago, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or the other way around. Uh, Men Make War, I think, was one of the things that men do. I wonder what Peter has in mind. Power, military might, prestige... A revolutionary new empire which would dump those rotten Herodians with their brutality and the fact that they've been taxing these people for too long. Peter might have thought when he thought of Jesus as the Messiah, this is pretty exciting. I can see the end game coming and it's looking pretty good. Here's a reign that's going to be like that of King David and we're going to end in triumph. But the triumph that Jesus was speaking of first involved suffering on the way. And at this point it's worth reflecting on our own lives too, isn't it? When it comes to thinking of the Christian life, do we think in terms of triumph now that we've come to people who live as God's children right with God? Should we think like Peter that this is somehow the age when we can see the end game? It's all pretty clear for us. Life is now without dramas, now that we're right with God. I raise the question because I often come across Christian people who are sometimes discouraged. Uh, They might feel that if they're not walking with the Lord as well as they should, they're somehow falling out of God's plans and they're doing it tough because maybe they're not as good as the next Christian. Now, I think it's a, it's a half-truth to think that uh, there's no connection between sin and sorrow. There does seem to be a real connection between sin and strife. For example, if I um, go out, get rip-roaring drunk, get into my car and drive into town and get breath-tested and or crash into somebody and find myself charged by the police and bring embarrassment to myself, my family and the church, uh, as well as you know, any trouble I might have caused to somebody else, you can see there's a link between sin, breaking the laws of the land, not to drink and drive, and God's word, which says don't get drunk. There's a connection between sin and the suffering that can follow. But at the same time, uh, there's not always that kind of link. We live in a world where we're just people following the Lord, walking with him, and we live as people who are forgiven, But that doesn't mean somehow we're in some kind of bubble where we can escape the problems that are common to man. We still live in a world without the final triumph. We still live uh, walking by faith, not by sight. And so if you're a person who is depressed at times, If you experience relationship pain, if you have some kind of chronic health problem, whether it's skin cancers that need to get burnt off once a month, well, if you're experiencing tough times and 
life's not quite what you'd hope it to be for whatever reason, it's not because you or me are some kind of Christian misfit that we haven't somehow hit the mark of spirituality. The fact is we just have to get used to this age. This is not the time of final triumph. Peter had to get used to that idea and it came as a shock to him. But what Jesus is telling us, glorification comes first and then the final triumph. We're in the time in between. The intriguing thing about this passage though is it tells us that since Jesus is the Messiah, he's coming to change things. And we all get rolled up into his revolution one way or another, whether we're for him or against him. In fact, the way that we can actually save our lives is a paradoxical one. It's to lose them. We see this in verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? As Christians who live in a Western country, we're often uh, not aware that we live lives which could be lives of potential martyrdom, taking up Uh, Denying self and taking up a cross to follow someone uh, is someone who's on their way to death. As we follow Jesus and stand with him, that means we're dying to self and if we're pushed, loyalty to him might mean death. I've noticed that if we stand with Jesus, we might be the objects of the same kind of derision and ridicule that Jesus himself faced. I see that there's a connection oftentimes between Uh, people's attitudes to scripture in schools and their attitude to the scripture teachers. Often, if they don't like the scripture being taught, I've seen that they're also a bit cynical and a bit hard on the scripture teachers themselves as well. I've heard comments made like, ah, that stupid lady, she was teaching that there's such and such from the Bible. But it seems to me that this is partly the norm, that if we stand with Jesus we stand to potentially suffer as well. But it turns out that it's okay. Isn't that marvellous? For losing our lives in loyalty to Jesus is the way for us to actually save our lives. We see that in verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In the next verse, 26, Jesus says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul. Well, Jeremiah, um, I was going to say Jeremiah, but he's not. It's Jerry Seinfeld. He's an American comedian who's made a bit of a joke about this verse in the past. His answer to that question is, well, you get the world. Boom, boom. But unfortunately for Jerry, he doesn't quite seem to understand that losing one's soul is about losing life with God. God's world tells us that there will be a great party in the renewed creation when we live face to face with God, with Jesus as Lord, that things will be beer and skittles then. But outside life with God, the other domain is not a place of stand-up comedians. Nobody will be cracking one-liners 
and there won't be people in side-splitting laughter like they've watched an episode of the Benny Hill Show. Instead, the other place is described as an area where God is not, where there is weeping, not laughing, and where teeth aren't chattering in laughter, they're gnashing. But the good news is for those who are loyal to this Messiah, who suffers for the sins of the world, he comes to reward those who are loyal to him. We see that in verse 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he'll reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man and he's picking up the language of Daniel chapter 7 of this one who comes to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and receives all glory, honour and power because he's enthroned as the king over all the kingdoms of the world. As the Messiah, Jesus is also the judge. And he's going to be the one who rewards those who are loyal to him, even loyal to death. The question is, are we going to be those people? Are we going to be the ones who are loyal to our Lord Jesus Christ? And so we're on the last point of the outline there is, how are we going to maintain our FOT? Well, that's a great question, Peter, but I don't know what FOT is. It stands for focus over time. Uh, in my experience as a high school teacher, I come across uh, some psychologists and they, they had different psychometric tests that people could take to work out which students might become great sportsmen. And one of the criteria in the psychometric test was this little measure called focus over time, which meant that if someone could actually dedicate themselves to the sport for the long term, instead of being distracted away by every other sport, they actually might make it as a champion. I thought it was a very little interesting uh, concept and measure, but probably better applied to the Christian life than to sport. And the reason why I say that is because in this passage, we're challenged to be people who deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We are the people who should be living for him as the supreme person we should be focusing on in our lives. That is, God wants us to focus on Jesus more than he wants us to focus on cricket, on family, on finances, on any entertainment or anything else. Our focus ought to be on the living Lord Jesus. If the way to be saved is by loyalty to him, to hold on to the Saviour, then questions like, what's going to help me maintain my focus over time on the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones that we should be asking. But the fact is we live in a world where people have very little time for God, don't they? And I wonder if that Aussie approach to life can eat into our urgency to live for God ourselves. Because the average Aussie's busy surviving at work and holding up the world with their job under the pressure of the tyranny of time just to get some respite, to forget about life for a while when they've come home for work and to enjoy distractions and beer and to cap it off at this time of year, one day cricket is just around the corner. But as Christians, we're called to be radical disciples. But I wonder if we're having more impact on the world 
in our radical discipleship and people are asking us the questions about the reason for the hope that we have or whether we're getting swamped by the world. We're getting impacted by this kind of shilby apples approach to life and look forward to one day cricket around the corner. Is our discipleship getting diluted? Are we getting swamped? Or to use an illustration from the world of surfing, are we getting flogged in the impact zone and going under, under pressure from the world, from people who would take us away from our loyalty to Jesus? Or are we people who are standing the test of time, radical disciples, and continuing with Jesus as Lord of every aspect of our life? That's the challenge that we've been given here this morning in this passage. And may we be people who don't have our lives of discipleship diluted and watered down. Let us in God's strength continue to press on, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following the Lord Jesus, living with him as Lord over everything in our lives. Let's ask God to help us do that this week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word which reminds us where our focus ought to be. Father, we thank you that the way to save our lives is by losing it in loyalty to Jesus, living with him as our king and not ourselves as king of our lives. Father, we pray that in the world that you've placed us, we might be having an impact on people to show them that there is hope and it's not found in the things of the world, but that it's found in life with you. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be very clear about these things. Father, help us to live with Jesus as our Lord in every area of our lives. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be engaged in your mission to spread the news of salvation throughout the world, both in our own streets, in our community groups, in our town, in our nation and throughout the world. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be committed to that and retain our focus over time on you. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.